Hello, I'm Lara Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's Community Cookbook Shop. These days between Christmas and New Year are some of my favorite of the year. Yes, the days, especially here in Seattle, are dark and cold. But my kids are out of school, my parents are visiting, and we're all getting ready for a new year. It seems like the perfect time to hear from today's guest, Alisa Timoshkina. Alisa grew up in Siberia, where snow and cold are a way of life this time of year, and where the new year is celebrated in a very big way. When Alisa was just 15, she moved to London to go to school. It was that separation from home, missing the food and flavors of her childhood, that encouraged her to learn to cook. She captured the recipes of her Siberian home in her beautiful cookbook, Salt and Time. Elisa still lives in London, and she invited me to her home, and even made me breakfast, in December 2019 to talk about her book, her family, and Russian New Year traditions. Elisa's lovely 13-month-old daughter, Rosie, joined us for the conversation, so you may hear some sweet little baby noises in the background. Here's Elisa Timoshkina and Salt and Time. Well, thank you very much, Alyssa, for taking time to talk with me today and having me over. It's a pleasure. Yeah, so lovely. And and thank you, you, Rosie, for being here, too. (laughs) (laughs) Your book is lovely. Thank you. Obviously, we will talk about the book, but I thought it might be good to start a little bit with your background. Sure. So you grew up in Siberia. Yes, I did. I was born in a city called Omsk. It's uh, quite a big industrial place in uh, kind of center of Russia, center of Siberia. Um, Because normally people think of Siberia as just being a big snow plain and there's nothing. But there are actually a lot of cities and they're quite, quite big. Yeah. I moved um, to England in 99 to study and then I just stayed. Never went back. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people think of Siberia as cold weather and snow. So what is the food like? It's a lot more diverse than kind of generally acknowledged. Um, and I feel is obviously um, for various political and just because Russia is so big and so far away from the West, uh, there's quite a lot of misunderstanding and confusion about what life is really like there. Yeah, um, yeah. And in terms of food, because it's so cold for most of the year, Again, people tend to think that, you know, there's not much to eat and what we do eat is quite heavy and there's only like potatoes and cabbage. Yeah, yeah. Um, Partly true, but it's actually very seasonal. What I do love about Siberian climate is that we get four distinct seasons, whereas here... In London, in the UK, it's kind of can be as grey and rainy and cold in summer as it is now in December. Uh, so in Russia, you do really feel this change of season and the produce changes so much. And especially back in the Soviet days, when uh, food import was not possible, the most natural way of eating would be to eat with seasons and make lots of preserves in summer and autumn. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'd ferment and preserve all sorts of vegetables and fruit. 
And then in winter, when there really wasn't much apart from the kind of notorious cabbage and potatoes, <laughs> um, I mean, there's meat as well, and you would eat lots of root vegetables and grains, mixed stews, and then add your vitamins and uh, vegetables through the ferments. Yeah. So I guess that's why I felt that fermentation is such a huge part of Russian culinary identity, that salt and thyme, the title of my book is a reference to that. And fermentation, you know, has become sort of very trendy, obviously, yes. in the past few years. Yes. But it is so ingrained in the food of so many different cultures. Yeah, yeah. It was quite interesting when um, I started working in food because my background professionally was in film history and Russian history. So when I moved into the world of food about five years ago, it was around that time that suddenly fermentation was so, so trendy and everyone was talking about kefirs and sourdough bread and kraut, sauerkraut. And I felt, oh, this is funny. This is the kind of terminology that I grew up with and, you know, the foods that we ate even far before the Soviet days. You know, fermentation is really one of the key I guess cooking techniques of uh, Russian cuisine that dates back as far as the kind of Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. And I thought it'd be very interesting to use that, kind of ride that wave to bring the Russian food into trend in a way, just to see, to show that, you know, all those new kind of trendy foods are actually quite central to Russian cuisine and they do make things, they do, you know, adding ferments, um, to any dish really kind of brings the flavors up in yeah. such a f fascinating way. Um, so I started just experimenting with uh, making kind of Russian ferments and combining it with more familiar food and did a few supper clubs and it seemed like there was interest for it and luckily um, uh, the book deal came, yeah. came up as well. Which yeah. was a dream come true, really. You mentioned, you know, that you had a background in sort of film and and Russian history. You got a P. I mean, not just a background. You got a PhD, right? I do. So, yeah. <laughs> so how did you make it from? That's a fairly significant yeah. transition, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. How did you get there? Well, in a in a weird way, the PhD, which had nothing to do with food, it was actually about Soviet film and the Holocaust. So the most kind of non-food subject you can yeah, possibly yeah. imagine. That was so hard to do. <laughs> just the not, I mean, the subject itself was very difficult, but also just the whole PhD lifestyle, yeah, kind of mind frame. It was just really, really hard for me. Um, I found cooking was a really wonderful kind of antidote to an otherwise boring, lonely um, library existence. <laughs> so I just started cooking a lot more, and every kind of spare moment I had, I would cook and then invite friends over. And it was during the PhD that I kind of came up with the idea of doing the supper club um, where um, you combine film and food. Oh, right. Um, okay. So drawing still on my experience of or knowledge and experience of film and putting on film events, I started introducing the film element, I mean, the food element into that as well. And um, the supper clubs worked really well. And initially, I just felt like it would be my hobby and something that would let me express my creativity a bit more because obviously doing a PhD is not the most creative yeah thing. but then the more I did though those supper clubs and the more chefs I've met and the more kind of foodies I've met uh -huh. I just felt so drawn into that world and I really felt happy and fulfilled doing that part of my life so I thought well why am I not just letting myself go for it and yeah. try 
it was a huge decision and um, was a bit scary kind of having done a PhD to suddenly just do a U-turn and go work in a restaurant you know washing up and you know do all sorts of things yeah yeah it was a bit strange but I was so happy I think I was just so kind of tra traumatized by the PhD that oh I wanted to do something that's kind of as far removed from that lifestyle as possible so you know working lots with my hands switching off the brain kind of do something quite meditative and kind of restoring emotionally and I've heard a lot of not a lot but like there are quite a few chefs that also had a very different career mm -hmm. either in corporate world or in the academic world yeah and they found cooking was such a kind of therapeutic experience for them so yeah, it was definitely the case with me as well. Yeah. You grew up in Siberia, but your sort of culinary influence comes from many different parts of Russia. Mm. And your dad is from far Eastern Russia, you mentioned in the book. I will admit that I had this idea that, you know, obviously Russia is a very big country, but I went to look up the city that he actually grew up in. Yeah. And he's closer to Japan yes. than he probably is to yes. Siberia. Yes. So, and your book reflects that. Tell me a little bit about just sort of the way that Asian cuisine or far Eastern mm. Asian cuisine influences mm. the way that you cook. Yeah. Oh, well, that's probably for me was the most fun parts of the book. Because obviously I grew up eating certain foods and, you know, my mom was cooking with certain condiments that felt kind of natural to me. But then when I moved here and started talking to people from other parts of Russia or even further from the whole of former Soviet Union, it suddenly turned out that those dishes that I knew really well were very unique to kind of my family alone. And most of those things were things like soy sauce and yeah. fermented ferns fiddlehead ferns yeah, yeah. and then lots of kind of Korean pickles as well so for me it was really fascinating to suddenly realize actually that you know people tend to think or to kind of equate Russian food to Eastern European food mm -hmm. which is true in so many ways but as you said on the map it actually you know a huge part of Russia is much closer to China and Japan than it is to the Eastern Europe and obviously there's so much food interchange on that kind of border there so, yeah, things like, I guess the fermented ferns was the biggest um, <laughs> kind of revelation to me that I didn't realize it's actually that rare and that unique. That's, I mean, here you also, you know, if you're into food and you know how to forage, then people have tried fiddlehead ferns. Right, right. And I know they're quite big in Canada as well. I've yeah, had, like, yeah. And we have them in Seattle and, as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, you know, once I started looking into that, it's very kind of regional you know, not many people actually know how to cook them or even realize that you can cook them. But in my experience, you know, the fiddlehead ferns, they're very um, common in Korean and Chinese cuisine. And that's kind of where the influence comes from. My granny, my mom's, I mean, my dad's mom would always send us big vacuum packed bundles of uh, brined fiddlehead ferns. Oh, and wow. my mom would make a very simple stir fry with beef and garlic and lots of soy sauce but then we would have it with like mashed potatoes which is like, <laughs> such, like more kind of an eastern european thing you know not rice or noodles but more of a kind of homey familiar kind of russian mashed potatoes so that like to me that's one of my favorite dishes that immediately kind of i associate with home and I loved eating it as a kid, but when I was writing the book, I realized it's actually such a unique thing. And, you know, at one point, the publisher was like, well, if you can't really tell people where to buy them, it's kind of pointless having the recipe. But I managed to convince them just to have it because it's such a unique and such oh, a special yeah. dish for, for me as well. And it tastes so good. So if 
people do manage to get hold of brined or fresh fiddlehead ferns is definitely a perfect one for that. Yeah. Well, and then you had a few ingredients that kind of fell into that category where it's, well, like sea buckthorn. You made yeah. us this beautiful sea buckthorn drink this morning. Yeah. Yeah, that's another classic Russian flavor that, um, that's kind of more universal across of, across the whole Russia. Mm-hmm. Especially in Siberia, it grows literally everywhere. And I grew up on a diet of pancakes and sea buckthorn jam. I went through this phase as we're talking about kind of um, fussy eaters (laughs) around, I think, eight or ten. I just went through this phase where I would not eat anything else but my granny's pancakes. Oh, wow. um, Just drowned in sea buckthorn jam. So again, yeah, this flavor is just immediately I can almost like see her kitchen whenever I have, have it now. But coming over here, I've realized that it's another unique thing and it's only recently again kind of similar to the ferments it's become very trendy in the kind of health conscious yeah community or you know this kind of trend of clean eating and you can get a shot of sea buckthorn at like my local yoga place oh, for like five right. pounds oh my, like, oh my god are you kidding me <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so it's this new superfood basically you can get in like health stores and stuff but in russia again it's very interesting that you know if you think of it it's essentially quite a healthy diet but there was never kind of a big emphasis that you eat that because it's healthy you just eat that because it's available and it tastes good it tastes good yeah that that was kind of the main reason really you have another ingredient there's a cake that's made from a cherry flower yeah bird cherry it's a tree that again grows kind of wildly and very common across the whole of russia and it produces very small kind of black currant like uh, berries that birds eat. And actually, they, these trees grow here as well. But again, I don't think they just kind of culturally never became an edible thing. It's yeah, just still yeah. is thought of something that birds would eat. But in Russia, you would harvest them and then dry them and uh, pound them into a kind of quite coarse powder. And then you add that to your cake or you can add that into actually like a filling for the dough. So if you mix it with um, lots of sugar and things like poppy seeds and, you know, you make quite a kind of wet, sugary, really beautiful filling for a uh, a cake or a kind of a babka style um, pastry. And it's the most wonderful, intense kind of cherry, almond flavor. And it's pretty much black so the cake looks like kind of a chocolate cake mm-hmm. a really beautiful rich dark color but it tastes nothing like chocolate it oh. tastes more like cherries yeah yeah um and amaretto so you get this really kind of big hit of amaretto flavor and it kind of has a really lovely coarseness to it it's yeah it's wonderful that cake Love yeah it. that made me think i want to order some of that flour online for sure yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's delicious you also mention your great-grandmother quite a bit mm, in the book. Yes, she's a big influence on me and my mom as well. She is my mom's grandmother um, and she comes from Ukraine. She's Jewish-Ukrainian and she had the most fascinating life. She was born in um, 1912 mm-hmm. and then she lived through the whole... Well, she, she lived almost till she was 100, so she lived through the wow. whole kind of fascinating traumatic history of the soviet union slash russia because she saw 
the beginning of the Soviet regime, when she saw the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, the two world wars, she survived the Holocaust. So she, she had the most incredible wow. life. And in our family, she always kind of was the storyteller. And, you know, I mean, the stories she had to tell were just amazing. And she also was a cook uh, by trade. It kind of never occurred to me until recently that I do actually have, you know, an example of another woman who had a, you know, career in food. But I guess it was obviously kind of a subconscious <laughs> um, kind of influence somewhere. Um, she, she wasn't a chef in a kind of fancy sense of the word. She just worked in canteens and kind of Soviet food establishment wasn't uh -huh. particularly fancy. But um, yeah, I kind of most of the time that I remember her, it's in the kitchen and she was always uh, baking. She, she was especially very good at baking. So she would mm -hmm. always make bread and um, sweet kind of pastries and um, all of the kind of big celebration cakes like New Year's and birthdays. She would always be the one making those. And the Napoleon cake that's in the book, um, that's really was her signature cake. Um, and we still kind of think of her whenever we make it with my mum. So yeah, she's been a really amazing influence on me in terms of the food, but also just as a person. She yeah. um, lived with us, again, for kind of various social reasons in the Soviet era. People, generations tended to live together, mm -hmm. which by many standards, I guess, is quite unhealthy <laughs> to kind of have a cramped space with several generations. But from my perspective as a, I think I must have been three or four, she lived with us until, yeah, I can't remember exactly, but maybe from like when I was three or four till I was eight or ten. Mm -hmm. So to me, it was fun. You always had someone to play with. Yeah. And she was so like loving. She would literally let me do anything. Uh -huh. Plus, she was obviously a bit older, so she probably didn't have the energy to like run after me and <laughs> tell me not to do stuff. So to me, it was like the perfect setting. I could, you know, dress up and perform for her and she would always be there and, you know, applaud whatever I did. So it was a really, yeah, really special uh, bond that we had. And um, yeah, the book in a way is a kind of a dedication to her. Yeah. And I've called my child after her as well. Oh, so. right. Yeah, Rosie. Uh, yeah, yeah. So kind of an English version of her name. Yeah, which was Rosalia. Rosalia, yeah. 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 Oh, lovely. So all of these things have sort of come together to make your book. What did you want to convey with the book? I guess the initial thing was there is a lot of negative kind of image of Russia for various reasons again, and some of them are justifiable, absolutely. But it's, I feel it's a bit sad when that kind of mostly political climate and the political kind of cloud almost goes over the culture and yeah. the lives of just real people. And food is such an amazing means of telling stories of people. And I think yeah, describing someone's food ritual is immediately something that you can, you know, just gain such a great insight into yeah. that person's life or even into the whole, you know, life of a whole community. So I guess to me, it was really important to tell. I know the word authentic is quite problematic, <laughs> especially when it comes to food. But I guess um, something just more honest, more real in a way, real to me, you know, based specifically on my experience and my memories and um, the stories that my family has. Um, but also, I guess the part of the PhD is still sitting somewhere in me. So I did quite a bit of research and looking into history of recipes. I find it so fascinating how, you know, where does a recipe come from and why do we cook it a certain way? 
And with lo lots of Soviet dishes, actually, it's so interesting to discover that their roots are actually in pre-revolutionary French-inspired cuisine, mm. or many Soviet dishes or kind of cooking techniques actually come from this famous trip that a um, Soviet food minister uh, did to the States. And he went to visit you know, McDonald's and kind of mass food mass production was their kind of big thing that they wanted to learn the secrets for because obviously feeding this huge nation was quite a task yeah and then he brought back so many recipes that obviously were adapted but they became staples in russian cuisine and no one thinks about where does it come from but it actually comes from the states and it has you know its roots and kind of fast food culture of the states wow. which is quite crazy to think especially considering the whole kind of ideological tensions oh, between yeah. the two countries. So I found that also quite fascinating. So I guess um, partly looking into history, but also looking into my own personal history and just showing people something new and something more, hopefully more authentic. Yeah. So you've lived in the UK since you were, I think, 15, you yeah, said in the book? Yeah. yeah. So how has the time that you've spent here influenced the way that you cook? Oh, hugely, I think. Actually, it's funny that when I lived in Russia, I wasn't that interested in food. I didn't cook much. I guess I didn't. I don't know why. I mean, my mom is an amazing cook and she always, I would always kind of hang around in the kitchen and she would always tell me um, what she's doing. Um, we always had this game of like her pretending to be a cook show host. Oh, yeah. The, the audience. But I never kind of had an interest in trying myself or... So until I moved here... I was kind of neutral about food, let's say. But as soon as I moved here, um, I suddenly realized that how big a deal food was and what a big connecting bridge it is to my family and my own identity and my kind of sense of self. And obviously being faced with um, the food in the boarding school, it was just so, so different. Yeah. And um, it was, you know, it was interesting, but it suddenly made me think, yeah, like, how much the palate influences, you know, how you feel about yourself and just the sm the sense of smell and everything is, you know, so crucial to your your own identity. And and I started calling my mom and just asking for recipes and started cooking the most kind of simple home food like meatballs and mash and that kind of stuff. And then once uh, once I moved to London and went to university, then of course London is the most amazing place for food. <laughs> you yeah. literally get every possible type of cuisine and there are so many you know ethnic communities that live here and it's just fascinating and wonderful for that so just eating out in london was probably my biggest kind of culinary school i really kind of you know i didn't just go out to eat but i was so specific about kind of trying to understand what exactly am i eating and kind of trying to peek into the kitchen to see how they're making those dishes so i was really kind of obsessing about eating out and saw that as my kind of full-time hobby. And that has inspired my own cooking so much, I mm -hmm. think. And partly, I guess in a way, the book is a reflection of that because there are so many recipes that I have adapted. Partly, like, especially the Soviet recipes that have been made a certain way because of the, you know, lack of food or lack of better ingredients. So these days, when we can have access to much better ingredients, I kind of re-tweaked the recipes in a way that make those ingredients shine a bit more or just experimenting entirely and um, using kind of traditional um, Russian flavors but giving them a completely different spin 
you know, been inspired by something I ate in London or, you know, one of my friends who are chefs, you know, lots of my friends are chefs and, you know, something they've cooked for me once. And I thought, oh, that's quite a nice idea. Maybe if I add more of like Russian ingredients into that, that would make a really interesting dish. And like one of my favorite things in the book is this a seed and spice mix that I call Russian dukkha. Uh-huh. I mean, it's not traditional Russian at all because it's not used that way. Right. But I've used all the traditional seeds and nuts that are used in Russian cuisine and just toasted them and grind them together. And then as we had them now on, you know, avocado on toast, it tastes great as yeah. well. And it kind of adds a really lovely crunch and a really lovely fragrance to so many dishes. I mean, I love it on hummus. And yeah. So, yeah, it's a kind of a play. It's also kind of a play with different flavors and seeing how you can make Russian cuisine a bit more kind of universal and open to fusion as well as trying to show very traditional, very authentic recipes. Yeah. So what you made me for breakfast, I think, is a really good example of what we've yeah. just talked about. So tell me about what we what we just had. Um, so the breakfast I made is a kind of a traditional European brunch, I guess, or continental brunch. Um, we had sourdough toast with avocado, salmon, smoked salmon and a soft boiled egg, uh-huh. um, which is a great dish on its own. But um, <laughs> I've added some fermented tomato salsa into the avocado to just add a bit of extra saltiness and a kind of a punch from the ferment. And then I've sprinkled the Russian dukkha on top for a yeah. bit of crunch and extra kind of spiciness. Well, it added so much. It was really delicious. Thank you. So that's kind of, I guess that would be my my kind of cooking that I do on a regular basis. I mean, I love cooking very just traditional Russian dishes as well, but it's always just a bit more fun to let your imagination fly and yeah. pick up. I mean, that's kind of the beauty of having such a multicultural society that we live in is that you learn from each other and it inspires new creations and it inspires your own palate and it's just wonderful. And it's kind of happening in Russia as well. Um, I have a recipe in the book, um, which is a buckwheat risotto. Mushrooms, again, it's based on a very, very traditional old kind of staple of buckwheat porridge that you cook with mushrooms. But it's very simple. So as a recipe on its own, it doesn't really kind of stand out as much. So I thought if I cook it more as a risotto and that way the buckwheat actually absorbs all the mushroom juices and it's add more butter and a bit of white wine. So just kind of to make it a bit more flavorful. And I love that recipe loads. But then someone somewhere online said, oh, I hate when chefs get all like clever and start twisting Russian cuisine into something it's not. And you know, risotto is not a Russian dish. But actually these days, when you look at some more contemporary Russian cookbooks, Risotto with buckwheat has become a very common thing of cooking it, and it's just using something that's, yes, it is authentic Italian. Right. And I mean, partly it's just one region of Italy, no, risotto right, right. again is not. And using that as just a cooking technique because it does infuse a lot more flavor into the grain. So I thought, well, actually, you know what? Traditionally, it's not, but if you look around what's happening in contemporary Russian culture, uh, culinary culture, then the risotto as a cooking method is actually becoming very common. Yeah. So it's quite interesting to see how the kind of progress of the food and how different cultures kind of mix together. Yeah, and weave things mm. into each other. That's the way you progress, right? We'd all, yeah. I guess, still be eating sticks or whatever if, uh, exactly. if we didn't allow for that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
So we are having this conversation very close to the holiday season. Yeah. And your book makes several references to New Year. It sounds like New Year is a very big deal where (laughs) you are from. Huge. So what kinds of things do you cook? Like what are the what are the traditions? How do you celebrate? So the New Year is a relatively new tradition if you kind of think of on a grand kind of (laughs) scheme of things. When the Soviet regime came into power, obviously being an atheist state, they banned Christmas. And initially they banned all holidays because it was just a bourgeois thing to do. Right. But then Stalin brought back the New Year's Eve and kind of just took, well, not him personally, but obviously kind of, I say Stalin as a kind of bigger (laughs) government. And they just took kind of all the tropes from Christmas or the tree, the Father Frost is the Father Christmas. So it's essentially very similar to Christmas, but it doesn't have any religious connotations. And it's a celebration of the new year on the 31st and the 1st of January. It's just become really the biggest holiday in the calendar. And people in the Soviet days, people really did save up all the food and, you know, all the money for presents. So it, it has been the most kind of sacred in a funny way, even though in an atheist state. But there's something very... You know, people almost get kind of tearful just thinking about it because it has such a special place in everyone's uh-huh. hearts. It's that moment when you've been saving, saving up for and you finally, you know, can sit down and enjoy. And there is something magical, I guess, that whole kind of transition from suddenly you're in the new year. You yeah, know, yeah. One second and you're like in a different kind of temporal plane. It's yeah. fascinating. <laughs> the traditional things, the most iconic one is the Olivier salad which around the world is known as the Russian salad. Okay. And it's interesting, I was researching the whole Olivier kind of history and culture for an article recently. And yeah, that whole salad has the most fascinating history in itself. And even though it's got the simplest ingredients, they were still quite rare to find. So the, you know, the Soviet mayo, which you think is like notorious because it's literally in every dish you can imagine. Um, but it was still a hunt for it. So it's not like you can walk into any shop and buy it. So people would start hunting for the mayo in August, you know, in order to be able to make the Olivia salad for the New Year's. Right. Um, and then, you know, if you find it, you keep the jar or you kind of you get as many as you can and you keep them until the holidays. So the whole planning of this one meal would really start as early, you know, kind of as soon as it wow. finishes, you'll start already kind of on, you know, you'd be on the lookout for ingredients. And that's why I guess there were so many tinned, so many tinned ingredients go into the salad. And then um, another classic one is um, called chaladiets, which is meat and aspic. That's quite a simple one. You know, you would just um, cook for, I guess, for like two days or so. You would boil on slow simmer. You would simmer um, various bits of meat, um, you know, like pork trotters and basically any kind of gelatinous meat that you can mm. get. And then flavor it with lots of garlic and um, just let it set in the fridge. So you get like this really beautiful um, kind of like meat jelly. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And then you serve that with um, lots of um, mustard and rye bread. And it's quite a fun dish because it's kind of, you know, it's see-through. And, you know, if you if you want to go, it's kind of, I guess it has its roots in kind of a French-style consommé. Yeah, yeah. So you would have like, you know, you can have um, carrots or whatever kind of cut in a nice ornate pattern that you freeze kind of inside it. So oh, you wow. get like, you know, it's quite a festive looking yeah, um, yeah. dish. And then the third one is called herring in a fur coat, which is quite a funny title. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, in Russian, it's actually called under a fur coat. 
And it's uh, herring fillings, um, not fillings, fillets, sorry. Um, and it's the herring that is not pickled. It's um, just kind of preserved in oil. Okay. Um, so it's a very kind of different quality. And then you have boiled eggs, carrots, potato and beetroot that are finely grated. And then you create, it's almost like a layered pie. So you create layers of different vegetables and then you smother everything in mayo. <laughs> And it kind of almost looks like a cake. And then when you cut through it, it's got quite nice, colorful oh, yeah. layers of pink and orange and white. So those three are an absolute must. And then I guess, it's, you know, in the Soviet days, it was those three things and then whatever else you have. So it'd be, you know, things as simple as salad made with fermented cucumbers and cabbage, just cheese and some kind of charcuterie. And pretty much that's it, really, you know, back in the Soviet days when people really didn't have much. Like these days, obviously, you can add whatever else you want. And it's kind of each person has their own menu. But those three iconic dishes yeah. are literally in every household. It still blows my mind to think that the Soviet regime was not around for that long. Yeah, to kind yeah. of embed that sense of attachment to a certain dish. Yeah. And it's been gone for quite a while now, but people still... Like throughout the whole, not just Russia, but throughout the whole of the former Soviet territories as yeah. well. I'm pretty much you know, convinced that most people cook those dishes for wow. the New Year's Eve. Yeah. Wow. But you could probably be a little more spontaneous with your mayonnaise purchase these days. You don't oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The shortages are gone long time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking My the pleasure. time today. Thank so and much. thank you, Rosie, for putting up with us. <laughs> Thank you to Elisa Timoshkina for the lovely breakfast and conversation, and to Rosie for putting up with all of our chatter. As always, you can get 10% off a copy of Salt and Time and any other books featured on Booklarder Podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code PODCAST at checkout. We have signed copies of many of the featured books, including Salt and Time, so be sure to get one of those while they last. And if you visit us in the shop, just mention that you heard about a book on the podcast for 10% off in-store as well. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard here, leave us a rating and review to help others find us. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at BookLarder. For more information about BookLarder, including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit booklarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, visit us in person at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. And thank you to all of you for listening to BookLarder Podcast and for all of your support in 2019. On behalf of all of us here at BookLarder, we wish you a peaceful and very happy new year. And we'll see you in 2020.